Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. We've entitled our second season Asset Class. After years of very good returns, broad indices of US stocks and bonds look expensive relative to history. This reality both limits future returns and increases the risk of a market correction. Investors who want to enhance future returns or reduce risk may need to adopt a more sophisticated approach, looking at different sectors and styles within US equities and bonds, and looking at other assets to diversify their portfolios. And that's what Asset Class is all about. In each episode, we look at an area of investing and speak to an expert in this area. After a nearly 12-year bull market, risk assets plunged in March of last year as the coronavirus pandemic sparked a sharp recession. Since then, we've had a bumpy recovery, with the pandemic having long-lasting, albeit varied, effects on the outlook for markets and economies around the world. In an environment where growth and investment returns will vary on a country and sector basis, portfolio allocation decisions across a global opportunity set are more important than ever in achieving long-term returns and yields. Here to talk about this environment and the opportunities for active management is my colleague Jeff Geller, who serves as Chief Investment Officer of our Multi-Asset Solutions Group here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. So Jeff, welcome to Insights Now. Thank you for inviting me. This is uh, looking forward to it. So to start, um, let's, let's go back to the start of the coronavirus pandemic last year. What were the decisions that you made going into the pandemic when the investment landscape was overshadowed by such huge uncertainty? I mean, how did you manage risk in that environment? Well, that's interesting because I think the most, the key decisions that we were making going into the uh, pandemic and over those first couple of months were all around uh, sensitivity to equity risk, credit risk, and then finally duration or interest rate sensitivity. Uh, the first thing we responded to when we understood the severity of the pandemic was to take down risk. Uh, and we did that in all three ways. We reduced our exposure to high yield. <clears throat> we increased the interest rate sensitivity by about a factor of three. And we brought down equity risk by around seven or eight percent. So we were very active in that period, the very end of, uh, of uh, February, early March, where I think we began to pivot. The first thing that we responded to uh, were the actions of the Fed. And I think when the Fed stepped up and uh, was coming in with a level of support for the corporate bond market, that's really where we began to pivot, uh, taking up risk in late March and early April, first in investment-grade corporates, then in high yield, and then by the end of uh, April, as we began to see what the path to recovery looked like in China, we began moving more into equities, first getting flat and then getting overweight by May. And then, of course, as the year went on, what a strange year it was last year, things changed again in November when uh, we had both the election ended and we sort of knew the outcome of that. Um, and then we had the, these uh, virus, uh, sorry, these vaccine trials, uh, which turned out to be very good. And so that changed the environment again and the uncertainty uh, diminished that point. So um, how did you uh, react to that? Again, we, we looked at the, vac the news on the vaccine as a game changer and that it was really going to catapult global growth. So up until that point, we were maintaining above average levels of risk in both equities and credit. But really, the big pivot then was toward global growth, where we felt not only would the U.S. be a winner and the more cyclical parts of the market, so leaning more heavily into small cap, but also more into emerging markets, feeling that this would be a rising tide that would lift all boats, similar to what we saw in, in early 2017 going into early 2018. So that was the big pivot in terms of taking up equity risk in more cyclically geared markets. 
And and now, of course, of course, that was six months ago now, and equities have rallied with not just that news, but also massive fiscal stimulus and, of course, the widespread vaccination program. Um, as the stock market has done so well, and uh, since the post-pandemic surge, but of course, valuations have gone up. What, what's your outlook for U.S. equities now? And are the pace of earnings growth and overall economic growth, is that enough to drive the equity market higher? That's, that's really the $64,000 question, because clearly, regardless of your view on inflation, just as we are in a reflationary environment where economic, the economic backdrop is improving, rates are going to be trending higher. And with that, PE multiples will contract. So from here, it's really got to be at earnings, about earnings. And our, our view, and again, it's been fairly consistent since the news came out on the vaccine that we wanted to lean into more cyclically geared earnings growth. And I think we're banking right now on above trend growth, certainly in 2021 and 2022. Uh, the question is really what happens beyond that. But it's really got to be an earnings recovery story and, and really identifying you know, those companies that will, that will be the relative winners in terms of really surprising to the upside at what are certainly higher valuations than, than we've seen before. It's got to come from earnings. And so, you see, you, so we're seeing this cyclical, strong cyclical recovery right now, and you're taking advantage of that. But um, as we go into 2022, and as the global economy catches up to the U.S., both in terms of vaccinations and returning to more normal, uh, norm, more normal economic functioning, what opportunities do you see in international markets? Well, again, yeah, we, we see it happening in stages. I mean, the U.S. did a good job of getting shots in people's arms along with the U.K., and the U.S. is clearly on the trajectory toward growth in terms of the West quicker. But as we look outside the U.S., uh, really Europe has become a, a favored market, which is unusual because we have been underweight Europe for a good part of the last five years. Um, and I think they've done a good job in terms of vaccinations, we see the operating leverage in terms of the benefit from the global economy. So the big pivot for us was taking up uh, risk in Europe. The flip side of that is while, as I mentioned before, in November, we took up risk uh, fairly dramatically in emerging markets, I'd say, you know, versus a neutral position. Uh, yeah, we were about 5% overweight emerging markets. Today, we're about 3% under. And I think, we've, I think we've pivoted in terms of our view on EM for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, China was first to emerge. So effectively, the delta in growth for China is going to be more subdued than you're likely to see in, in, other, uh, in other countries. Um, also, they probably have not done as good a job in terms of vaccination. Plus, when we look at the composition of the index, it has much more of a growth tilt given the the, the the percentage weighting in some of the mega cap tech names. So at a time that we're really trying to lean the portfolio more toward value and cyclicality, uh, emerging markets has been a funding source. Now, our view is that you know, as, as, as this progresses and you begin to see you know, growth pick up in other parts of the world, you're gonna wanna take sizable positions at EM. We just think it's kind of early. That's gonna be something that we're likely to revisit later in the year, early next year. And of course, another dimension of how everything is changing here is inflation. Um, inflation expectations have increased significantly this year. Um, if you look at uh, break-evens in the Treasury market, uh, it appears that the Treasury market is pricing in inflation of roughly 2.5% over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, do you think that the inflation that we're seeing is transitory, as the Fed appears to, or is it going to be perhaps stickier? And either way, are you positioning for a reflationary environment here? 
I'd say, I'll tell you what we're watching for and what we're really doing. I mean, I'd say for right now, uh, we're adopting the view that this will be more transitory. Um, and that, but we are positioning more for an, a reflationary environment where, you know, inflation, where we wouldn't be surprised to see the 10 year trading at two and a quarter, two and a half over the next year. Uh, but what we're doing is really trying to capture it more through tilts in managers. So we've pivoted toward managers and strategy. So our, our tilt toward value and cyclicality is probably about an eight point spread of, of value versus growth, which is a big pivot that we began introducing in November, between November and January of, of last year. Plus we're underweight duration across portfolios by roughly three quarters of a year. So I wouldn't say necessarily that we have inflation hedges per se, uh, but we clearly have leaned more toward the reflation trade, both in terms of the managers and the strategies we've leaned toward, as well as our views, uh, as well as our positioning on duration. So you do expect long-term interest rates to go up in reaction to this and to the expansion. Um, can you give us some sense of your view on the Fed in terms of its timeline, both on when it will eventually raise short-term interest rates and also when it may begin to taper its balance, the growth of its balance sheet? Yeah, again, I think the consensus is that's happening later. I think they're going to have, I think the, a risk that can't be ignored and what the Fed is going to have to continue to watch are, I think, are three critical things. One is, you know, the supply disruptions that we're seeing right now. Perhaps they are not as transitory and they do persist and the market will respond to that the longer that goes on. The second is we're not seeing signs of massive wage pressure, but if we see more of that, they will. And then finally, inflationary expectations. Uh, you know, my guess is, uh, you know, the Fed is deliberately signaling they're gonna be behind the curve. And the risk that we need to think about is there an overshooting in terms of how the 10-year trades as any one of those variables move. Um, and I think that's a risk we've got to think about. That's not, a, I think it's, it's not a dominant risk for us today, but it's one we can't ignore. Of course, we've seen extraordinary disruption in our lives and society and markets because of this pandemic. How does this sort of factor into decisions with regard to passive versus, versus active management during the recovery? And do you think this is actually a good time for active management? Yeah, I'd say we are, if you look across our multi-asset portfolios, we are leaning more heavily into active uh, management than, than we ever have. I think it's a pivot that began in April of last year, accelerated November, and it accelerated further this year. And I think, you know, a lot of that is thinking about the environment that we are going into. You know, if, if earnings are going to matter and earnings anchored around valuation, what you pay for is what what will drive markets higher. Yeah, we think that this is a ripe period, not only for active managers, but especially those that could that could go into relatively looking at, you know, small cap or mid cap names where, you know, I think some of the winning that active managers are going to do is, is basically avoiding some of the high beta growth stocks, you know, that ha are trading very, very high valuations that will never drivel that will, that aren't likely to deliver the earnings that will, that will justify to grow into those valuations. So I think it's, it's almost like avoiding that tail of the mm -hmm. index is going to look like, I think, a big alpha opportunity for, uh, for active managers. Yeah, that, that makes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so finally, you know, thinking about multi-asset portfolios, multi-asset solutions, how, uh, of course, every investor is different, but for the sort of average individual investor, how do you think a multi-asset solution, solution product fits into the portfolio of an average investor? 
well, I mean, again, I think multi-asset aside from diversification, the real question is, um, are we making allocation decisions that are going to position you well for how you're going to perform versus a more, a more diversified or a, a simple 60-40 over the next 12 to 18 months or longer? I think today what's really going to make the difference is, is that I think the opportunities are probably more nuanced. Um, it's going to be, I think, more difficult just being in a levered beta trade in here. Um, if you think about what we've tried to do on the equity side, I think how you play active versus passive is going to be important. I think we've tried to be much more targeted in thinking about other sectors or areas of the market where uh, you're likely not only to see earnings recovery, but earnings recovery that could surprise to the upside versus where valuations are trading. Uh, when it comes to credit, I think spreads have come in a lot. I think it is really hard to think you're going to make the easy money owning high yield or, or any credit portfolio like you might have earned back in March of last year. I think we are positioning much more in a, in a very targeted way of trying to play, let's say, U.S. corporates in a very isolated, specific strategy to play upgrade potential, you know, of, of basically double Bs that have the ability to migrate to triple B minus or triple B minus that could migrate to triple B plus or single A. So I think it's being more nuanced and playing the quality upgrade story and where you could get paid for taking that risk. And I'd say for duration, I think, you know, we want to be light duration without, uh, you know, with, without necessarily, uh, you know, betting that, you know, inflation risk is going to spin out of control. That, yeah, rates will be higher than they are a year from now, uh, but, you know, not necessarily at a pace that's going uh, to derail, uh, the, you know, this rally completely and, and uh, the movement in, uh, in risk assets. So I think a lot of it is, you know, how do you trade in a more nuanced way? How do you get the more balance of risk? How do you take risk where you're compensated uh, and not lean so heavily into beta that you can't ride through some of the volatility that we're likely to see? I mean, the good news is that we're all recovering and, and we're in a much better place as a society. The bad news is markets have moved very far and, and it's a challenging environment. And this is really a time when you need that nuanced professional approach to asset allocation. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Please tune in to our next episode, when I'll be joined by Ted Dimmick, head of our advisory and core beta solutions group here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.